para mí siempre es un honor estar aquí con ustedes. Yo quiero que ustedes sepan que yo amo a esta iglesia, amo trabajar aquí, amo a esta comunidad y de veras los aprecio mucho a todos ustedes. Y para mí siempre me encanta saber en dónde están mis latinos. Entonces si se me entiendes, levanta la mano, quiero ver la mano. Me encanta, me encanta. Tenemos a dos personas. Perfecto, perfecto. Can you imagine if I preach this whole sermon in Spanish? That'd be so funny, right? I actually, when I was talking, I was like, hey, if you can understand me, like, raise your hand. And instead, like, I had two people raise their hand, but everyone else was like. And here's, here's the thing, here's the thing. I just want you to imagine if I really did preach this whole thing in Spanish, you'd probably be like, why am I here? Like, I just, I don't understand anything. And Here's the thing, here's the thing. You guys tell me all the time. Misael, I took Spanish in high school. <laughs> Look, no offense, you still wouldn't understand me, I promise you. I mean, it's, for some of you, it's been a while since high school, okay? Some of you are still in high school, so that's awesome. But, but think about it, you know, for me, I'm only preaching in Spanish at 12.30 today. Uh, so be praying for me, that'll be sermon number three, that'll be kind of crazy. Um, but imagine if I did preach this whole thing in Spanish, you'd be sitting here... Everything going over your head, you'd be like, man, what am I doing here? What's going on? And, and some of you, I think, would leave here and make this joke, okay? Here's a joke you would make. I know you guys. I know you guys. You would say, oh, Misael forgot to put his English microphone on. <laughs> guys, this microphone's bilingual, okay? So come on, come on, come on. But seriously, think about it, though. I preach this whole thing in Spanish, and I would not be communicating in a way that you can understand. I would preach in Spanish and you would not be able to grasp what I'm trying to say and be able to process the meaning of what I'm trying to say and process the information and be able to apply it if it's valuable to you. You'd just be sitting here and then you'd leave and go, well, okay. But instead, I'm having to come up here and communicate to you in a way that you can understand, in a way that you can grasp, in a way that you can process and evaluate if it's true or not. Being able to take it in and, and say, you know what? Maybe I can kind of understand what he's saying if it's valuable and if it's truthful. And I use that example with you guys, not just because I want you guys to laugh and, you know, have a good joke. But at the same time, I think it's valuable for us to understand that God, who's almighty, all-knowing, all-kind, all-amazing, all-merciful, all-present, all-everything, king of kings, like this all-amazing God, had all the right to communicate to us in a way that we didn't understand. He had all the right to communicate and just have it go over our heads. But instead, God communicated to humanity since the beginning. And he kind of just went like this and said, I'm going to communicate to you in a way that you can understand. I'm going to communicate in a way that humanity can grasp what I'm trying to say, can process my words, can, can be able to evaluate if it's true or not, and then be able to apply it. And again, think about that. Since the beginning... God has done that, and he's done that in so many languages, and today we get to do it in English and Spanish as well, and it's just amazing to me because everything I just described to you is called revelation, right? So, re so God has revealed himself in three really big ways. The first one is creation, everything that was created. The second way is his word, right here, and the third way is Jesus himself. And so God has revealed himself and has communicated to human beings the knowledge of himself and also the knowledge of what it is to be human. The knowledge of, hey, you're kind of messed up and here's why. That's what God has communicated. 
And so this is really important for us to grasp because today we're going to try to answer a really hard question. And maybe it's a question that you've asked yourself. Maybe it's a question that your friends have asked. Maybe it's a question that your family's asked. But here's the question. Is the Bible true? Is the Bible true? And I know you can probably already hear your friends, your family members, or someone say, okay, I hear your answer if the Bible's true or not, but how do you know? Like, how do you know? Like, I heard your answer if the Bible's true or not, but how do you actually know that the Bible's true? And so this is the question we're going to be uh, talking about this morning. So go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll be in verses 16 and 17. As you get there, I just want to remind you that we are in this series where we're asking these hard questions. And they're the kind of questions that maybe keep you up at night. The kind of questions that if you go and ask somebody else, you might say, hey, I'm, um, I'm kind of asking for a friend here. You know how when we say that, asking for a friend. I'm kind of asking for a friend here. Like, is the Bible true and, and how do you know? Like, I just need to know. And all of these questions come from maybe doubt, maybe comes from just like asking questions. And I just, before we just keep going, I just need to say this because I think this is valuable. Right now, if you're in this room and you are doubting, and if you're asking questions, I just need you to know that's okay. Like it's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask questions. But let me remind, remind you of this. It's more okay. It is more okay to question your doubts. It is more okay to question why you're questioning and being able to evaluate of like, what's the deeper root of why I'm asking this? What's the deeper root in which why I'm doubting? And I want to encourage you to research and to ask people who you trust all of these questions and to talk about it. And so as we go into uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, my goal for this morning and this message is to give you some confidence that the Bible is true and, and give you some confidence to be able to briefly share that with someone else. And uh, here's the thing. I'm going to try to do that in 20 to 25 minutes, like, you know, after a little bit of intro, a little bit of outro. You know how it goes. But we could talk about this for months. Like, we could talk about this for a whole year because there's so many things that we could say. So I'm going to be brief and I'm going to give you some things to, to maybe help you begin understanding all of this or just to add to the understanding that you already have. Um, and so just make sure you know that. And so when we look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it says this. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Again, is the Bible true and how do you know? I have a question for you and I actually want you to raise your hands on this. How many of you have been Christians for about 24 years or more? Let me see your hands. Don't put them down. Let me, I just want to see you. I want to see you. Cool, cool, cool. You want to know a fun fact? You've been a Christian as long as I've been alive. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Gotcha. No, I'm just kidding. Hold on. Put your hands up again one more time. Hold on. Let me see these hands. So what if right now, keep your hands up. What if right now I did one of these and just said, hey, you, hey, come up here and answer this question if the Bible is true or not. And then tell us how you know. Hey, you, like, like come on, like, come up here and, and take the stage. And honestly, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have you talk about this. How many, how many of us could actually do that? 
confidently and say, well, here's, here's what I know and here's what I know to be true and here's the research. And if you just got nervous, that's okay. We're talk- I'm talking about it, okay. Um, but that's just something that we have to be ready for as I've just, you know, hung out with friends and family members and as I've met people and I've just been walking around and I'm like at Walmart or something and I'm just hanging out with friends at a coffee shop and they ask me, okay, well, Misael, you know, you're a Christian, like, how do you know the Bible's actually true? And I'm like, oof, how much time do you have? <laughs> and so this is just such a relevant question for us. And so as I talk to people about that particular question, we have to first start with like, okay, what's the Bible? You know what I mean? Like, what, what, what is the Bible? What's the goal of the Bible? And, and what's the Bible trying to tell us? Well, when we think about the Bible and we look at the Bible, the Bible's all about God. Like it's literally all about God. It's all about Jesus and the Old Testament and the New Testament all point back to Jesus Christ. And it points to our mess and our need for God. It points all to him. And what's incredible about the Bible is that God chose these humans, these people to like physically write the words of the Bible. But God is the only author of the Bible. And we're going to look at that in a minute and more of how we can actually tell that God is the only author of the Bible. But all the Bible brings glory to God, all of it. All of it points to Jesus and our need for him. And so, yes, it's a, the Bible is all about God. But, again, it's, it's really telling us about how humanity is just the worst, you know. Humanity is the worst and we need God. And God is literally the only answer to our problem. God is the only answer to the need that we have. And so as we look at this and even as we look at verse 16 that says that all scripture is God breathed, we have to remember that it all starts with God. This Bible, the Bible you have, did not start with man. It started all with God. And so we have to remember that this is God's word and it's infallible, it's inerrant, it's his revelation that he is the one true God and the only way to salvation. And I just said some words that some of you might not understand and that's okay, we'll define them in a minute. But long story short, the Bible shows us that God is the one true God and we have to depend on him. And he's the only true God and the only true way to be saved. And so as we look at scripture, that's kind of the lens that we're looking through. And as we look at that question of is the Bible true, that's how we're filtering everything through. And so this morning I have four points for us. And uh, the first one is where I'm going to spend most of my time. And then the other three we'll kind of go through quickly. Because this first one is is really the first... uh, point and the first thing that people always try to attack when they think about the Bible and when they try to ask if the Bible is true or not. So here's the first point. The Bible is reliable. The Bible is reliable. Again, we see in verse 16 that all scripture is God breathed. The Bible is actually very accurate and whenever you talk to or do some research and just see what scientists or historians or Even atheists, what they say when they look at the scripture, they're kind of like, you know, there is astronomical evidence that this thing is reliable and that it's accurate. Like there's so much evidence that the history that this thing talks about is true. Now you have to remember the Bible is not really like this historical book where it details everything from beginning to end. But all the history that it does have, it's a kind of historical, redemptive story of restoration. But there are also some real historical things that happen here that historians are like, yeah, like that's true. Like it's so accurate and so reliable of what it's talking about. But then you keep talking to people and they're like, well, 
you know, there's just a lot of errors in the Bible. It's just not accurate. Like, they just give all these criticisms of how the Bible is really not 100% perfect. And you ask them, you go, okay, well, well, tell me, like, what are you talking about? Like, tell me these errors that you're talking about. And so I'm going to give you some of these errors that people say, some of these errors that people point out, in order for you to know just some of the things people might say. And so one of the things that people say when they talk about Scripture and how maybe there's some errors in it, they say, you know, we just don't have the, like, original pieces of paper that the Bible was written on and that, and that these books were written on. We just don't have the original ancient text, like ancient pieces of paper. And I'm like, I mean, it was paper. <laughs> like, we don't have any, any ancient text written on the original paper because it, like, dissipated and disintegrated. And I was like, we, we don't have any of that. And, and so when we think about that, we're like, okay, but we have so many copies. Okay, so I want you to think about this. How many of you have, like, read Homer's Iliad or the Odyssey or any of that? Let me see some hands. Okay. Cool. You guys are shy with these hand raises now because you think I'm going to call on you. That's funny. So if you're in high school, you probably read it. Or if you're not in high school yet, you'll probably read it. Or maybe you did read it in high school a while back. But when you think about Homer's Iliad, there's 643 copies of Homer's Iliad. 643 copies, or you could say manuscripts. And then when you put all these copies together and you stack them up and you begin to compare them, like the words and the meaning and everything that's going on, it's like 95% accurate. Like all the things that it says, all the things that it means, it's, it's like, okay, wow, that's honestly really impressive that Homer's Iliad would be 95% accurate amongst all 643 copies. That's pretty impressive. But then you compare all those 643 copies especially to the New Testament, well, the New Testament roughly has around 5,500 or 600 copies uh, or manuscripts. So imagine that, 5,500, 600 copies. And again, we stack them up against each other, right? And we say, okay, are all these copies saying the same thing? Are all these copies accurate and reliable and what has been copied down and written down? When we look at that and we compare them, just in the Greek, because if you add on all the other languages, it's like 24,000. It's incredible. But just in the Greek, it is 99.5% accurate all the way across the board. 99.5% accurate, which is incredible. But I can already kind of see and feel in your minds and your thoughts saying, Misael, I just feel uncomfortable that there's even a 0.5 missing. I, like, why, why is it not 100%? Why, why is there a 0.5 in there? Well... Let's look at some of those 0.5 percentage of things. Because again, we have to look at scripture through the lens of this is God's word. It is perfect. There is 0% of it that is of error. But what does it mean that 0.5 of it is not exactly there? So let me give you some thoughts here. So there's this word, and this word is discrepancy. Okay, this word discrepancy really means a dissimilarity that doesn't change the meaning. A dissimilarity that doesn't change the meaning, that's what a discrepancy is. And so I actually want to point out some of those discrepancies that are included in that 0.5%, okay? So in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, there's this part where it talks about how 700 chariots were killed. And then you go to 1 Chronicles chapter 19, verse 18, it's kind of talking about what 2 Samuel said. And instead of saying 700, it says 7,000. And then one of my... Uh, most interesting ones that I could think of was uh, Luke chapter 23, verse 43. 
And so in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when you look at the manuscripts, they don't know where to put the comma. Because it's that point where Jesus is on the cross and he looks over to the other guy on the cross and he's like, man, today you'll be with me in paradise. And the manuscripts are like, well, we don't know if the comma goes here or here. That's one of the 0.5% discrepancies. And then when you look at the Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you have some Gospels that say uh, whenever the ladies went to the tomb. Some say that two ladies went, two women went. Some say three. And so there's this difference of, of women that went to the tomb to go see Jesus' body. And that's part of the, five, or the 0.5%. But you see these dissimilarities don't change the meaning at all. There's these little details that really don't change the meaning because when we look at Scripture, and again, verse 16, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed. Well, we have to think of God's character. God is holy. God is perfect. God is all-knowing. And so I just want to define these two theological words for us and these two words that people use to summarize what the Bible is according to God's character and according to God's holiness. So this, there's this word, and it's infallible, Okay. Infallible. Infallible means that the Bible is not misleading. It means that it's clear, that we can rely on it on a, as a guide, that it is fully trustworthy on everything it talks about, that the Bible is infallible according to God's character. And then there's this other word that, honestly, I didn't know how to spell for the longest time. Like, I heard it all the time. I was like, how do you spell that? The other word is inerrant. Inerrant. So I'm going to spell it out for you if you're going to write it down. So inerrant is I N. E-R-R-A-N-T. That's how you spell inerrant. That the Bible is inerrant. And so when we think about that word, that word is really summarizing that the Bible is free of falsehood. That nothing about it is false. It has no mistakes. And that we can have complete confidence in it because it is 100% reliable. And so we see that because of God's character and his holiness and perfection and who he is, he's this almighty, all-present, all-knowing God, well, his word is not going to fail us, and his word is always true as a guide because it will never mislead us. And then I want you to think about the Old Testament. It's incredible to think about all the prophecies in the Old Testament. But then we look at Jesus. Okay, when you look at Jesus, Jesus actually fulfills like 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. That's a lot of prophecies. And there's actually some people and some scholars and, again, some even atheists that go, you know, if Jesus only fulfilled like eight of the 300, that would be like impossible. Like some of them say, like imagine getting tons of quarters and then filling Texas with tons of quarters and like a stack of five all over Texas and say, okay, hey, find the one with my initials on it. Also, I'm going to blindfold you. Those are the odds of fulfilling eight out of 300 prophecies. Now imagine Jesus fulfilling 300. Jesus did the impossible, the miracle, because he is God, and he fulfilled the New Testament and the Old Testament. It's just a beautiful thing. And then I want to show you a picture. This picture you've probably seen on somewhere in social media or somewhere on Google if you looked at it. But this picture for me is just incredible as you think about, again, God chose these humans to physically write these words, but God is the only author of the Bible. And so you have this beautiful connection between the Old and the New Testament. And so this picture really helps us understand how the Old and New Testament connect together. Um, and we'll see it in a little bit. And so we'll see, we'll see, we'll see how they connect together in a minute. Uh, and it's just beautiful because when we, when we look at this picture that you'll see, you'll see kind of like a time, not a timeline, but almost like a graph like this. And it just shows you how 
um, the Bible connects because then it has like this like rainbow shape. And it shows all the cross references. Oh, there we go. I don't have to describe it anymore. It has all these cross references of how the Old and New Testament just like talk about each other and the prophecies. It's just absolutely incredible. And here's just a crazy number for you. That there are 63,799 cross-references between the Old and the New Testament. It is just absolutely amazing to see how God, the one author of the Bible, just communicated to humanity. Because again, like, like these books in the Bible, God chose different people to physically write them throughout a ton of time. And so sometimes there's theologians that actually talk about it this way. They talk about the riders being like a sailboat. And so the sailboat's like on the water and without the wind, well, the sailboat can't really do anything. But it's not until the wind comes in that the sailboat can actually move. And so the same way is how some theologians describe the riders, that the riders like the sailboat. And it wasn't until the Holy Spirit moved them that they began to write. And so we see that scripture is God-breathed. It's just incredible to see all the evidence that we have, that we are able to rely on God's word, rely on scripture. And so here we have Paul in verse 16 just saying, guys, like God breathed all of this into existence. Man, this is from him. And so he's encouraging us of saying scripture is something that we can have confidence in. It's infallible. It's, it's inerrant. It's, it's perfect. It's a great guide. And because of all of that, it should change our beliefs and our behavior. It should do that. And so we see that Paul is pushing for us to have a high view of Scripture. And so we've seen that the Bible is reliable. And so here's the second thing that I want us to see is that the Bible is just raw. The Bible is just raw. It is just so authentic. Like there's nothing hidden here. And I just want you to, again, look at verse 16. And it says this in verse 16, it says that not only is all scripture God breathed, but it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and correcting. When we look at scripture, it highlights the good, the bad, and the ugly of humanity. It doesn't hide a thing. And what's so interesting to me is that some of the writers of the Bible, again, these physical human beings who were chosen by God to physically write these words, like, they told on themselves. Like, they talked about their own wrongdoing. Like, I don't know about you guys, but if, like, I was one of those people that God chose uh, to be these physical writers of Scripture, I would probably, like, tell of my friend's wrongdoings and my friend's sin, but I would never tell them about myself. And like, yeah, I'm not telling you the wrong things that I do. I wouldn't tell you the sin that I did. I'd tell you about theirs, but not mine. But in Scripture, it's even highlighted that even some of their own, their own writers were like, yeah, this is what I did. This is how I failed. Man, this is how I sinned. And as we look at other ancient texts from this time, you have different kings and different people writing stuff. It's really interesting that when they write, they write to glorify themselves. And they always talk about their victories. They never talk about their defeat. They never talk about the wrong things that happened. They always talk about the like, grand things and the victorious things. But when we, look about, when we look at the writers of Scripture, they don't write anything to glorify themselves. They write everything to glorify God. They write everything to point back to him. Because if these writers wrote to glorify themselves, we wouldn't have different situations and stories in the Bible. And I'm going to give you just some of those. If these writers only glorified themselves, 
we wouldn't have stories like Moses murdering a man and being forced to go into exile. We wouldn't have David talking about how he slept with Bathsheba and murdered uh, her husband. We wouldn't have David in some of the Psalms just going, God, like, where are you? God, I don't know what to do. God, I just feel like you've left me. Like, David's just, like, crying out. And he's like, man, this is the worst. We wouldn't have those. We wouldn't have the disciples in the Gospels saying, yeah, we didn't listen to Jesus, even though he was right in front of us. We were dumb. They wouldn't be saying that. We wouldn't have Peter denying Jesus Christ, his Lord, three times. Because if I was Peter, I'd be like, hey, psh, take that off, take that off. But it's all about glorifying God and just showing us how messed up we are. Because the fact is, is that the, the Bible points to the reality that humanity needs their maker to be their redeemer and sustainer of their life. They need their maker to make them new, give them new hearts, new minds, new souls, transform them to be born again. I mean, they need their maker to make them new, like brand new. And that's what we see pointing right here that all scripture is God-breathed. And it's good for teaching and rebuking and correcting. But then it goes on, it says, and training in righteousness. And so that's actually our third point. Our third point is that the Bible is respected. The Bible is respected. It's been used to train others in righteousness. <clears throat> and I just want you to think of some really interesting things as we think about that the Bible is respected. Isn't it really interesting to you that the Bible is like in hotel rooms? Like, like it's just so interesting how like the Bible was one of the first books to just be like, you know what, we're going to put this Bible in this like little cabinet thing right there next to the bed. It's so respected. It's, it's really interesting to me how the Bible is like one of the first things to be printed when the printing press came out like a long time ago. It's really interesting to me that when we look at the Bible, the Bible is the thing that people put their hand on when they go to court and they're supposed to like promise to like not say anything that's false. It's just so interesting to me, interesting to me that the Christian and, and the non-Christian respect the Bible. I even had some friends who are in business and uh, they're not Christians at all. But even though they're not Christians, they still like put into practice biblical principles because they see it as valuable. They see it as good. They're like, yeah, we don't really believe that whole God stuff, but man, this is a really great principle. That'd be good for our business and for our people. And so we see this Bible is so respected and, and uh, it's respected because I also think it just speaks with authority. So <clears throat> one of my professors at OBU, his name was Todd Fisher and, and now he's like a, you know, a big guy in Oklahoma Baptist as a director, uh, the executive director. And, um, and so one of the things that, that he talks about whenever he describes the authority of scripture, it's actually really funny. He kind of he views it this way. He goes, Scripture does not speak like this. And I'm going to use, use you guys as an example, okay? Scripture does not speak like this is what he says. He goes, Scripture doesn't go, hey, imagine that there's like a big snake under like your chair. You know, just imagine that. It's kind of crazy. It's like really big and it might swallow you, you know. That's not how the Bible speaks. Todd Fisher goes, no, the Bible speaks like this. Hey, there's a really big snake under your chair. I'm not kidding. Like, I'm being super serious right now. There's a big snake under your chair. You should probably get out of here. I was expecting you guys to jump, to play along 
that's okay. We'll talk about it later. That's how it speaks. It doesn't speak like, hey, imagine. No, it speaks like, no, seriously. Like, this is happening right now in front of your face, right now in your life, right now this is happening. And that got me thinking. I wonder, and I just wonder, if the reason why people ask the question, is the Bible true and how do you know, I wonder if it has nothing to do with what we just talked about. I wonder if it has nothing to do with, you know, the inerrancy or it being infallible, all kind of stuff. I bet it has nothing to do with the errors. But I just wonder if it has more to do with people not wanting to sit under the authority of God. I wonder if it has more to do that they don't want to sit under the authority of the word of God. Because the word of God, it causes you to change. And there might be a lot of us in the room or people that we know that do one of these and go, yeah, you're not making me change. I'm not changing for anybody. I'm not changing. But you see, when Scripture speaks with authority, it always asks us to change. And then Scripture, because it does speak with authority, it makes us take action. But you see... There's some of us or some people that we know, they're like, yeah, I'm not taking action. Like, yeah, I know the snake is under my seat, but I'm sitting right here. I'm not moving because, you know what, I believe that it's better for me to sit in this chair with this giant snake under my seat, being okay that it's going to swallow me up. Even though I know it's so much better for me to get out of here and run and not be sitting under a snake. And so, again, I wonder, I wonder if, the reason why so many people will question the Bible is really just because they want to take life into their own hands. And they don't want to sit under the authority of the creator, God Almighty, who loves them, who can restore them, who can redeem them. And there's so many people who much, and, I, and us included, honestly, we much rather trust ourselves and our own judgment rather than God's. We much rather trust our own word rather than God's word. And my friends, like, if, if we're going to trust God for our salvation, man, let's trust him with his word and let's trust him with our day to day and our life to life and our situation to situation. Because his word is true because he is true. We've seen some evidences of, of that logically, practically, historically. But when we look at God's word, it must be the authority in our life. And so many people try to find the errors to excuse themselves to not live under that authority. And so we've seen all of these things. And, and the last point I have for us is that the Bible is relevant. The Bible is relevant. The Bible is so applicable to our life. Like this, this past summer, I like read and read and read and read through Galatians, and it was awesome. But I want to point to you in verse 17, because this is why I say that the Bible is so relevant for us. In verse 17, it says, all of these things, right? And then it says, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So scripture, all scripture 
is God-breathed. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Scripture is so relevant into our life right now. And so if you are in here and maybe you've taken notes, maybe you haven't taken notes, there's, there's this one little phrase I want you to write down. And it's this phrase of, there is scripture for that. There is scripture for that. The reason I want you to write that down is because if you feel alone right now, there's scripture for that. If you lost a family member, there's scripture for that. If you're super excited because you got a promotion and you're trying to figure out how to handle that, there's scripture for that. If you find yourself working all day at a desk, there's scripture for that. If you find yourself working all day in construction and you're like bored and you're like, man, I don't know what to do, man, there's scripture for that. If you're over here and you're finding yourself like in the best day of your life, there's scripture for that. If you find yourself in the worst day of your life, there's scripture for that. If you find yourself as a really young Christian or an older Christian and you're trying to navigate life, there's scripture for that. Maybe this one might hit a little too close to home for some of us, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you find yourself at home and unmotivated to love your kids and hang out with them, there's scripture for that. If you find yourself at home and, and you're like really just wanting to punch your brother or sister in the face, hey, there's scripture for that. Friends, familia, there's scripture for that. And when we look at God's word, man, honestly, God's word is the only answer that we need and that we have. And so there's these two things I want to encourage you and challenge you with. Maybe you're someone here today that is doing a really, really, really good job at spending time with the Lord and spending time in his word. Can I just tell you, good job. I'm proud of you. I don't know who you are. But good job and I'm proud of you. And here's my challenge for you. Show someone else how to do that. Show someone else how to be in, in God's word and, and how to read it and how to be able to have this devotional life with him and this daily life with him. But then there's another group of people that I want to encourage and challenge. If you're someone in here that says, Misael, who cares? Who cares that the Bible is authoritative and this and this and this? Then I'd probably say, man, I think you need Jesus. <laughs> I think you need Jesus to transform you. Because the moment he transforms us, we want to know his word and we want to be able to live his word. And then maybe you're the Christian who says, no, me said, no, seriously, like I have been transformed. He said, no, I do know Jesus. I just haven't been in, in the word like I should be. My question would be, are you trying to run away from the authority of God in your life? Are you trying to run away from the authority of scripture in your life? Because maybe the reason you're not reading it is because you don't want God to tell you what to do. Maybe the reason you're questioning it is because you don't want to sit under the authority of the almighty, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-kind, all-merciful, all-loving, all-just God. And so my encouragement, my challenge to you is to sit under the authority of God and his word. Because he is true and his word is true. And right now we live in a world that says that truth is something you create. But my friends, truth is who the creator is. And he is truth. And he has given us his truth to know and to find and to live, to know how to walk right in him. 
And so what I want to do is I just want to end by praying for us because I know that either we are one of those or we know one of those. I just want to pray for you. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I come before you in this moment so humbled, but yet so thankful that you, the God Almighty, you, the God all-knowing, all-just, Lord, you have spoken to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can grasp, in a way that we can process the meaning and the truth of it, and that we can apply to our life. Thank you that you did not leave us to our own doing. So, Lord, right now I pray for those who have been under the authority of your word. I pray that they would teach others to do the same. Lord, I pray for those who, who are just dismissing the authority of, of, of your word and your authority. Lord, I pray that they would be convicted. Lord, that they would know that maybe they need to know you first before knowing your word. And Lord, I pray for the believer in the room who has just neglected their time with you. God, I pray that you would also encourage and convict them. Lord, that they would know that they must sit under the authority of your word because that is the best way to live. Because you show us who you are. You show us who we are. And you show us what to do. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.